Good morning, Journey. Man, what a great back-to-school Sunday it has already been. I want to thank all of you who get your kids here faithfully every Sunday. Thank you. All of those, all of you who ever serve in our nursery or our kids' ministry, thank you. There are two things. If you're a parent and you have a child under the age of 12, listen to these two things. Here's two things you can do to make sure your kids grow up to love Jesus, or, or maybe I should say to put them in a really good position to grow up and love Jesus. One, love Jesus well yourself. Love Jesus and follow Jesus in your everyday life, and that will give your kids a great chance to know who Jesus is, too. Get them faithfully involved in church. Uh, We had a leadership meeting with 12 of our children's ministry leaders last Sunday night for three hours, and the whole content of our meeting was how do we make sure we do a better job of teaching kids, whether they're 2 or 12, about Jesus, who he is, what he wants to do in their life, what he has done in their life. We're really serious about helping young children here know who Jesus is. So if you have a, a child under the age of 12 and you want them to know who Jesus is, live well for Jesus and make sure they're in church faithfully. And we'll do our very best to partner with you to make sure that that happens. Well, we are just a few weeks away from NFL kickoff Sunday. If you look inside your bulletins, we celebrate the first Sunday of the NFL here at our church uh, in a special way we're actually having NFL kickoff Sunday here on that day like we did last year we're giving away hundreds uh, probably three or four hundred this year 500 maybe um, bags of chips jars of salsa we ask everyone to wear their favorite team gear that day there'll be people on the stage and Chiefs gear Brandon will be wearing his Texan shirt we actually had a guy last year that came in his Raiders gear but he got saved so I'm sure this year he will not be wearing the uh, the black and silver um, but it's kind of no holds barred you can wear your favorite collar team, you can wear your favorite pro team, but it is football day at our church on Sunday, September 9. And if you go out to Arrowhead or if you watch any games on TV, you're going to see what we saw on that video. You're going to see a banner, a sign, something that says John 3, 16, which I believe has become largely because of sports venues, the most famous verse in the history of the world. Uh, There was actually a guy who made it his, basically his goal in life to travel to every major sporting event with this verse on his shirt. Maybe you've seen him. You can can Google him and see him from the Masters to the U.S. Open Tennis Championship to football, baseball, basketball. He wore a big kind of rainbow-colored wig and a shirt that says John 3.16 and just found himself in TV shots so often. This guy's so well-known at sporting events that he was actually on The Simpsons. The Simpsons had an episode where they did a big football game, and he made it in to The Simpsons. That's how you know you're a big deal in the sports world. You get Tim Tebow who put John 3.16 on his eye eye black before playing in the national championship game a few years ago. You have the greatest fast food restaurant in the history of the world, In-N-Out Burger, that's largely found on the West Coast. It actually has John 3.16 on the rim of the inside of their cups. They have a different verse on their fry pan because they're Christian-owned and operated. But this verse has kind of become, if Christianity is one verse to the world, It's John 3.16. And probably if you've grown up in church or around church, you probably know this verse by heart. You might not have a lot of verses memorized, but this one you may have memorized. Let's just say it together and we'll we'll give, some of us will be King James, some of us will be something different, but let's just work our way through it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe the greatest verse, perhaps the greatest statement in the history of Christianity. But did you know that really more than just a verse, more than a statement, that verse is actually an answer to a question. 
In John chapter 3, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of John. Take your bulletin, flip it over so you can take notes. Our ushers are actually going to go down the aisles. If you need a Bible this morning, if you don't have one on your phone or on your tablet, if you didn't bring one, if you want a Bible this morning, wave your hands at the ushers. They have some to give away. We've passed out more than 500 Bibles since our church began just like this. Put your name in it. It's yours to keep. If you just forgot yours today, but you're curious to read all of John chapter 3 on paper in your lap, um, just use it today and throw it on the table when you leave. But um, if you don't have a Bible or you don't know where yours is, this is yours. Put your name in it. It's yours to keep. Because in John chapter 3, we see a conversation, perhaps the most important conversation in the history of the world, uh, going on the verse that has come out of that conversation. But we see a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus that proves to be absolutely life transformational. And I want to read that to you today. John chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 17, and then keep your Bible open on your lap. We'll, we'll keep going back into it to just keep digging deeper into the truth of Scripture. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where, where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify of what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here's that famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, I want to show you, keep your Bibles open and on your lap. I want to show you how impactful and transformational this conversation was. Go back to John chapter 3, verse 1. We meet this man named Nicodemus, and we're told two things about him. We're told that he's a Pharisee. What does that mean? It, it means that basically he was a religious teacher in Jesus' day, um, a strong religious teacher, a well-respected religious teacher. He had been elected to one of the most prestigious boards of religious teaching that there was. We see that he also, in verse 1, was a member of the Jewish ruling council. There were 70 men in Israel who were basically what I would, what I would call as, they, they were more than spiritual congressmen. They had the job kind of of a congressman or a senator, but only in spiritual things. They were kind of like spiritual Supreme Court judges. Their job was to lead the nation spiritually. They, it was like their elected place in Israel, that they were one of 70 who would spiritually lead an entire country. This was an important guy, we find out. And we find out in verse 2 that he came to Jesus at night. I need you to underline those words, circle those words, highlight those words, because you need to understand he came to Jesus at night because he did not want his buddies to know that he was hanging out with Jesus. 
We find a Nicodemus here who is a highly educated spiritual man. We find Nicodemus who's highly respected in religious circles. And we find a man who's, who's pretty curious about Jesus but doesn't want everyone to know how curious he is about Jesus at, at this point in time. So he goes to Jesus under the cover of darkness so that he can have this conversation about him. So when we meet Nicodemus in Scripture, he is someone who's afraid to be seen with Jesus. One of the next times we see Nicodemus in Scripture, I want you to flip back to John chapter 19, and then we'll, go, we'll come back to John chapter 3 and live in there. But in John chapter 19, just to kind of fast forward where we are, Jesus has done ministry for three years. Those of you who know even briefly the story of Jesus, he ended up getting arrested. Um, he was put in jail. He was beaten horrendously, and he was crucified. And as his body hung on the cross dead, we find that two men went to the governor of Judea. His name was Pilate. And these two men said, we are here to claim the body. He's a friend of ours. And we're going to provide for his burial. And now that he's been killed, we don't care if the whole world knows our relationship to Jesus. We want to take care of him. I want you to see their names in John chapter 39, verse 38. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, up until this time, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by, what's that guy's name? I can't hear you. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which is probably three months' wages he brought. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. How do you go from being someone who, who is afraid of people knowing that you want to hang out with Jesus to being the person that pays for his funeral? What happens in the life of a person that you go from having closet conversations about Jesus that no one is aware of to stepping up publicly before the man who sentenced him to die and said, hi, I'm his friend and I'm going to take care of the burial. What happens in the life of a man to get from, I'm, af I'm afraid to be known as a follower of Jesus to, I don't care if the whole world knows this is how much I care about him. What happened is a conversation in John chapter 3. A simple conversation with some simple questions, but some profound spiritual truth. And it's funny because Nicodemus started the conversation and Jesus kind of cut him off and was like, dude, here's what you need to understand. And Jesus went straight for the jugular truth that I have phrased. If you look at kind of our Bible study notes today, here, here's, here's what's going on in John chapter 3. Jesus is helping Nicodemus understand how to start over. Now let me ask you a question. As we sit here on August 18th, 2013, has there ever been a time in your life where you've wanted to start over? Or maybe today is a day in your life that you'd like to start over. If, if you could do your marriage differently, you would. If you could go back and do high school and college differently, you would. If you could parent differently, you would. If, if you could have a different relationship with your parents, you would. If you could pick a different career or manage your finances differently, like if there was a way to start over, you would if only there was an opportunity. The good news today is that there is. And in John chapter 3, we're taught not only how to start over, but how to start over spiritually, 
And we see why this verse has become so famous because the context surrounding this verse may be the most important biblical truth that any of us may ever hear. How, how do you start over? Let's start with the fact that regardless of if you think you need to or you want to or you're willing to, according to Jesus, you have to start over. This isn't a decision you, you get to make. This is a decision you, you have to make. You have to start over. And Nicodemus was kind of surprised to hear this, to be honest with you. In John chapter 3, if you read the conversation carefully, he wasn't done saying what he said, and, and he, wasn't, he wasn't asking a question when Jesus kind of cut him off. Look at John chapter 3, if you would. Some of you, like me, you're going to have to flip back there because you're in John 19. In John chapter 3, we start off this narrative, and it says there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a, Jew, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we, now circle that word, we, Here's what we find out. He's either representing the Pharisees or he's representing the Jewish ruling council. But he's basically saying, we've been talking about you. We have been sitting around. We have noticed you. We've seen what you've done. We've heard what you're saying. We've heard what you're... We're curious about Jesus. And maybe you're in here today because you're curious about Jesus. We have people every Sunday who come to our church who don't love Jesus, who have not given their life to Jesus, they really don't like organized religions. They had a really bad experience in some church. But like Nicodemus, they continue to be curious about Jesus. And man, if, if he was who he said he was, it would change everything. But they're kind of still on the perimeter. They're looking. They're talking. This was Nicodemus. We've been, we've been talking about you. And he said, basically, I, I'm, I'm here to try to figure out what's the deal. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you're doing. If God were not with him, he has not asked a question. He's only made a statement. It doesn't appear as if he's done. And Jesus cuts him off in verse 3 and says this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, what, what happened here is, is really interesting. Because Nicodemus, I'm sure he presented himself as John does, is very important. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the ruling council. We've been discussing you. And Jesus blows all that off and basically says, listen, I don't care who you are or where you came from. Here's what you need to know. No one is going to see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, those words born again in our, in our English language, we would probably translate them unless they're reborn, unless they've experienced a rebirth. Jesus is basically saying, Nicodemus, I don't care who you are, where you came from. You and everyone else has to start over spiritually. So have you ever experienced a time when you've wanted to start over? Have you ever experienced a time when, when, you, when, you just, when you see the end of things coming and it's not the end that you thought it would be or it's not the end that you want and you thought, you know, I wish I could just, like before this gets to its culmination, I wish I could just stop and go back to the beginning again. You know, I'm 35 and I grew up in the age of the very first Nintendo. Any of you remember the very first Nintendo and the very first little remote control? It was like A, B, up, down, side to side, and that, like that was it. Now you have to be an octopus to play video games because there's like 30 buttons for, for every hand. But, but I grew up in the day of, of the old school Nintendo and, and the classic video games from the Tetris to Zelda, the little guy with the sword, to Mike Tyson's punch out, getting a knockout, Soda Popinski, that Russian boxer who, who, whose boxing trunks were way too small for kids to be playing um, at that age, uh, you know, and maybe the greatest video game ever made Tecmo Bowl. And I've talked to some of you about my Tecmo Bowl fascination and Bo Jackson who could run a 2-5-40 and like he was like if you just ran quick pitch to the left Bo Jackson you could run it every play and win almost every game but Tecmo Bowl would not let you win every game 
it had some kind of preset in it where you could choose your team, you could choose a season, but it would not let you go 16-0 and before you made the playoffs. And as much as I tried around week 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, it would always make me lose. And I could go 10-0, and 11-0, 12-0. I think one time I got to 13-0. But eventually, I'd be playing that game where I thought the computer's not going to let me win. And I'd get late in the third quarter, I'd get late in the fourth quarter, and you know what my favorite button on the Nintendo began? And in those, in those moments when I knew the desired end wasn't going to happen, you know what my favorite button on the Nintendo became? Reset. It's like, oops, I guess we got to start that game over again. Because I realized what I wanted wasn't going to happen, and to fix it, I had to go back to the beginning. How many of you have ever just wanted to go back to the beginning? You, you look up one day and you think, oh my gosh, the... The end result of my life is not what I wanted it to be. Could I, can, I just, like, can I reset? Can I start over? And Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, um, brother, you've you got to start over. Now, this wouldn't have been a goal of Nicodemus. This, this would have been confusing to Nicodemus. And as a matter of fact, when we enter the conversation, Jesus says you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus asked maybe the greatest question in the history of the world. He asked it twice in this. Jesus said you've got to be born again. He said, how? How? And Jesus says this, number two, if you're taking notes. Jesus said, you have to start over spiritually. You have to understand what I'm talking about, Nicodemus, is a spiritual thing. I'm talking about a spiritual thing deep inside of you, connected to a spiritual thing deep inside of me. I'm talking about Nicodemus shedding everything that you've ever accomplished spiritually. I'm talking about you and me right now, right here, starting over spiritually. Let's pick up in verse four. As a matter of fact, let's go back to verse three just so we can dialogue a little with Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus replied very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, how can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus says. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Circle that word spirit. Jesus said, you need to understand, I'm talking about spiritual things here. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit, circle the word spirit, gives birth to spirit, circle the word spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Circle the word spirit. Four verses, four times the word spirit's mentioned. Nicodemus says, how, how am I supposed to start over at this stage of life? And Jesus says, spiritually, 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 spiritually. How do I start over at this place in life? My marriage is over. I'm divorced. My kids are gone. They hate me. I have been bankrupt. I've been kicked out of my house. I've been evicted. I have no money. I have no friends. Our pets' heads are falling off. Hey, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like one of those scenarios. For everyone over the age of 40, that's a quote from Dumb and Dumber. Forgive me. Don't watch it. It won't make you more like Jesus. But it was very funny when I was 18. Um, it's like, you know, how do we start over? When everything has gone wrong, how do we start over? And Jesus says, you do it spiritually. You start over spiritually. Now, this is where Nicodemus would have not only been a, 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 um, confused, maybe it would have been where he was offended. Because Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, he was a member of the ruling council. I mean, Nicodemus technically, according to culture, could not start over spiritually. The, the funny thing about this conversation is, Nicodemus knew what Jesus meant when Jesus said you have to be born again. Uh, the question, well, how, how do you go, how, you know, how can you go back into your mother a second time? That, he, that was not a sincere, genuine question because this phrase, 
This thought of being born again, this thought of being reborn, this thought of starting over, it actually originated in ancient Israel. Uh, One thing I love to study is the Hebrew culture. My favorite class in seminary was Hebrew, not only studying the Hebrew language, but studying the Jewish culture. And those of you who are like your fans of history, uh, there's a website called followtherabbi.com with a brilliant Jewish teacher by the name of Ray Vanderlaan that just teaches us a lot of things contextually about um, Judaism in the New Testament. But, but Vanderlaan tells us that there were culturally very understood six ways that a Jewish man could be born again. I mean, in culture, this would have been a phrase that was used, that was understood. This was something that was very culturally acceptable. Six ways that a man could be born again. You're probably not going to want to take all these notes, but I'm going to share them with you. Because Nicodemus was basically saying, I understand what it means to be born again, but I, I don't think I can Um, A a Jewish boy could be born again or reborn or remade or restart at 13 when he chose to follow God's For those of us who have Jewish friends and we just celebrate their 13th birthday. When an individual got married, they were said to be born again or to be reborn in a new state of spiritual leadership. When an individual became a rabbi, the rabbi was a teacher of scripture. They were said to be reborn culturally and in leadership. When an individual became the head of a rabbinical they were known as the teachers of Israel. You would hear Jesus call Nicodemus and say, you are a teacher of Israel. How do you not get this? Um, and, and then two ways that Nicodemus could have been again, when a Gentile converted to Israel, they said that he was reborn um, into God's family, or when an individual was crowned king. That wouldn't happen to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is at a place in his life where he had been reborn. He had started over all four times that he could really start over, yet here he was later in his life, really successful as a person, really successful spiritually, yet, yet he's curious that maybe Jesus offers more. There's something even in the midst of all of life that he's wondering if Jesus offers more. And he's saying, Jesus, I don't understand. I don't understand what's left for me. I don't understand how I can start over. And Jesus says, you can start over spiritually. You can start over spiritually. It was as if something on the inside of Nicodemus, he knew that something on the inside was supposed to be alive, but it had not like regenerated yet. There was supposed to be some feeling or some peace or some purpose that he was supposed to feel that he didn't. And even with all his Pharisee friends and even with all his, his official friends on the Sanhedrin, still he's going to Jesus saying, I know there's something more. And Jesus says, you've got to be reborn spiritually. And, and what's crazy is this, Jesus said, Nicodemus, man, like you're a teacher of Israel, but if you don't understand the spiritual, you're not going to get it. And, and here's what I have come to realize spiritually. Most times spiritual things are both unexplainable and undeniable. Most times spiritual things like you can't really explain to someone what God is doing in your heart. You can't explain to someone why you feel the way you feel. Like, it's unexplainable, but to you, it's undeniable. Like, you just know that God has done something. You just know that God has changed you. And you you just know that even though you can't explain it, it has happened. And if you could just figure out how to explain what has happened in your heart, you'd be like, man, I could convert the whole world, but what what is unexplainable is undeniable. I can't explain it to everyone, but I know it happened to me. Now, I grew up going to really little traditional churches in the backwoods of southern Ohio. 
and we sang hymns like we had a piano player and an organ player. And, and I am a fan of the old hymns. Did any of you grow up in little churches like that singing hymns? And there was one little old lady, and she, sound like, she sang louder than everybody else. And, you know, everybody would kind of look at her, but she just loved God, and her name was Mildred. And it's like, you know, that's okay. Just let Mildred sing really loud. She doesn't hear real well. You know, that's the kind of churches that I grew up in. So I love the hymns, and I love the hymn stories. I love, I love kind of the behind the scenes of how these songs came about. And one of my favorite hymn stories it was written, written uh, about a pastor by the name of Alfred Ackley, who was born in 1887, the son and the grandson of a pastor. And he became a pastor himself. And one Easter Sunday morning, the hymn story says, he was getting ready for church and he was celebrating just in his heart and in his life that Jesus was alive and he was excited to go tell people Jesus was alive and he was excited to tell them what that meant for his life and he was listening to a little transistor radio in the bathroom while he was shaving and getting ready that day and he heard a pastor come on the radio and said happy Easter can't wait to celebrate Easter and you know Jesus may be alive he may not be alive it doesn't matter let's celebrate Easter that really upsetting and he thought what do, what do you mean it does matter it does matter that Jesus is alive. And all day long he was upset that this guy had said maybe Jesus isn't alive. And all day long he stewed on the thought that if Jesus isn't alive, then none of this matters. And if Jesus isn't alive, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, then like we're cursed. And if Jesus isn't alive, then one day we're not going to live again. And just all day long he was frustrated at this thought that Jesus is alive. And how, like, how can I prove that to the world? He went to church and he preached that day frustrated. And he came home to lunch frustrated. And he went back to church Sunday evening and he preached frustrated. And as he got into bed that night, his wife said, what is wrong with you? You've been frustrated all day long. And he told her the story. And he said, I'm just really frustrated that this pastor would say this. And he said, more than that, I'm frustrated that I know Jesus is alive, but I don't, I don't know how to convince everyone else of that. And she said, well, why don't you just write down your thoughts? Write down your feelings. And as a former musician, former uh, music leader at one point, he put his pen to paper and he wrote these words coming from the frustration of his heart that he knew Jesus was alive, but he didn't know how to convince everyone else of, of that. And, and he wrote these words, I serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today. And I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near in all the world around me, I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. What he was trying to say is, I can't explain it, but I can't deny it. Because he's alive right here. And I wish I could prove it to everyone, but I don't know how. My favorite question, I have a lot of, of acquaintances, um, some even friends who are atheists or agnostic. They don't believe like I believe. And we have great respectable conversations. And sometimes on mission trips around the world and in the inner cities of America, I've had confrontational conversations with people who don't believe in God. And my favorite answer, which isn't even an answer for people who, who come up to me and say, prove that God is real. I say the same thing to every one of them, prove that he's not. And they're like, well, you know, well, that's impossible. So, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can't prove he's real to you, but I know he's real to me. All I can tell you about is my life. All I can tell you about is what he's done 
for me. All I can tell you about is what he's done on the inside. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, I don't understand what it means to be born by the Spirit. How does that happen? And Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 8. I love what Jesus said. It's so practical. He said, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Listen, we don't know how the wind works. We can't really catch it, but we can feel it. We know it's there. And Jesus says, you won't always understand or even know what's going on spiritually, but you'll always feel it. That's the way it works. It's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural thing. You know, if, if you have your bulletin, I, I put this card inside it again because next week we start an eight-week series because I've just been wrestling for a year with trying to figure out how we can help people in our church know Jesus better. And Jesus has impressed on me that, Christian, you have to teach the supernatural aspects of Christianity. You have to teach the spiritual aspects. You have to teach the feel aspects. You have to teach people the super... You've got to teach them about God, and you've got to teach them about Satan. You've got to teach them about angels, and you've got to teach them about demons. You've got to teach them about spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict. You have to teach them that, they, that dwelling within their body is a spirit and a flesh, and they're in contrast with each other last week, we said. We, we took the advice of Jesus, said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How come I make all these spiritual commitments that I can't keep? What's wrong with me? It's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural thing. And next week we dive into what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus here. Nicodemus, it's a spiritual thing. And people who aren't spiritual don't get it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, I love what the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth. The message of the cross, this spiritual stuff, it's foolishness. To people who are perishing, to people who don't believe it, it doesn't make any sense. But to those of us being saved, it's the power of God. It's like the wind. We can't catch it, we can't control it, we don't know what it, where it's going, but we know it's real because it's impacted us. We know it's real because we have felt it. And while we can't explain it, we sure can't deny it. Something on the inside has been regenerated. And here's Nicodemus saying, Jesus, I've got all this spiritual past, but I don't feel alive on the inside. Tell me what I need. And Jesus says, you have got to come alive spiritually. Some of you have been going to church all your life and you've never felt alive spiritually. You've never felt the spiritual wind blow. And maybe that's because you feel alive spiritually like Nicodemus or you want to be alive, but you haven't regenerated yet on the inside where you can just say, you know, I, I can't explain everything, but I cannot deny what has happened to me. It's just real. And it's not real. Okay, well, how do I do that? Jesus said, you need to, your mentality is wrong according to spiritual things. Number three, he said, Nicodemus, you need to understand that people need salvation, not ceremony. You see, you have overseen church, and you have overseen the temple, and you have overseen the treasury, and you have overseen the sacrifices, and you have even made laws for, according to the Old Testament scriptures, but for you, it's much more about ceremony than salvation. You kind of see yourself as a partner of God here on earth rather than someone who's in desperate need of God on earth. I want you to see John chapter 3 verses 9 through 17. I've wrestled through this the past two weeks trying to understand this for myself first. Go ahead. Lord, what do you mean here? What's John trying to say here? And I, I believe the Lord has shown me what's going on in John chapter 3 verses 9 through 17. And I believe the answer is Nicodemus cared more about ceremony than salvation. But watch why I say that. John chapter 3 starting in verse 9. And here's, here's the question again. Every time Jesus said, do this, he said, how? This is how you know someone has a learning heart. It's like Jesus said, be born again. Okay, how? Okay, we'll be born again spiritually. Okay, how? Um, tell me how this works. Verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. 
you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify of what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. He just dropped a you people on him right there in the, in the middle of that text. Like, you people. Verse 12. I've spoken to you on earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Because no one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, here's, here's what threw me off there. If you look at uh, verse 12. He said, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you've not paid attention. So he said, this is going to be hard for me to speak to you about spiritual things. And I, I got hung up the last two weeks on earthly things. And I thought, what is he talking about? What earthly things did he point out to you people, whoever you people was, that they ignored? What earthly things did he say were wrong? I mean, he's teaching Nicodemus here. And I started looking all over the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What, what did Jesus say here? And I thought, wait a minute. Here's what the Lord spoke to me. Christian, John wrote his book to a specific person, probably a group of people, not ever anticipating that they would ever read Matthew and Mark and Luke. So the answer's got to be in John. If, if John wrote that I told you this, then somewhere between John 1 and this, Jesus had to have said something that he's referencing back to. Because the answer's always in Scripture. John, John wouldn't have given something vague. So I thought, okay, what did Jesus say? What earthly things did Jesus ever say? And I came to John chapter 2. And I realized in John chapter 2, the only earthly thing Jesus has said between his birth and here he is and John the Baptist and his first miracle was this. The first thing Jesus said in John is that the ceremony of the church had begun to trump the need for salvation in the lives of people. The ceremony of doing church had begun to trump the need for salvation in the lives of people. Where is that? John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. This could have been the only thing that John was pointing back to. And here's what it says. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all the people from the temple, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I went back, and I thought, okay, what's going on here in John chapter 2? Because what's going on in John chapter 2 is biblical at a glance. The Jewish Passover was being celebrated. We have to go back to Exodus chapter 12, Prince of Egypt stuff, right? For those of you maybe more familiar with Disney than, than Scripture. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They'd been in slavery. The day before he led them out of Egypt, they had the Passover. And here's what happened at the Passover. Jesus said, I'm, God said, I'm sending my angel of death. You're like, that sounds creepy. It'll make more sense after the Supernatural series. God said, I'm sending my angel of death, and it's going to kill everyone. Everyone has been destined to die except the people who put blood on their doorways. Um, and he said, the people who put blood on my doorways, I will pass over. Those who were destined for death, I will pass over them because of the blood, and they will live. And he said, every year you people are supposed to commemorate this ceremony by bringing an animal to be sacrificed so the blood will remind you that you were destined for death, but I saved you to life. You were destined to death, but I saved you to life. He said, that's what Passover means. So Jesus shows up at Passover and instead, and, and he said, if you live a long way from Jerusalem, sell a cow at home, take the money, buy a cow when you get there. Because I don't want you to have to drag your cow several hundred miles to Jerusalem. Or if you have doves and you're afraid they might fly away, sell your doves back home, go to Jerusalem, buy some more, more, more doves. If you've got a sheep that, you know, is kind of crazy and it likes to wander off the road, just sell the sheep at home, bring the money, buy a new sheep. So this was okay. They were allowed to come and buy a new animal. 
But Jesus walked in and he said, this has become much more about ceremony than salvation. All of you forget that you were destined for death and you were only saved to life by this sacrifice. You don't see them as sacrifices anymore. They're just animals. You don't see this as, as something that saves you from spiritual death anymore. You don't even see yourselves in need of salvation because you've got all this ceremony and ceremony doesn't cut it. So with that perspective, I look back at John chapter 3 verses, uh, John three fourteen through 17, and I thought, well, here's the key verses. Here's, here's what Jesus explains to Nicodemus, which is so important. And here's what he said in verse 14 with the backdrop of people who were destined for death, who needed a Savior, people destined for death who need a Savior. Jesus said, my life and my ministry is going to be like this, Nicodemus. Here's how you become alive spiritually. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I read that and I thought, that makes so much sense. You see, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, you should jot that down. We won't turn there, we won't read it. But in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, Moses, prince of Egypt, right, has led the people out of the Red Sea, and they've all sang and danced, and this is after the Disney movie because it ended after the Red Sea. Um, and, and they were between Egypt and Israel, and it took them 40 years to get from Egypt to Israel. You say, how, like, how does that happen? That's only a few hundred miles. Well, a man was driving, and he didn't want to ask for directions. They just went round and round for 40 years. At some point in this journey, near the end of it, the people started getting angry at God, and the God who had done so much for them, the God who had saved them from certain death many, many times, um, became irritating to them. They didn't want to follow him. And they began grumbling against God and maybe the worst setting that you could ever place me in. God, it says that God sent up snakes, poisonous snakes from the desert to start biting them all. Now, Danielle and I were talking the other day trying to figure out which animal it would be worse to die by. And we decided that death by animal is terrible, regardless whether it's a bear or a shark or a snake or whatever. I pray to God I'm not eating alive one day by anything because that, that, uh, that'd be bad, especially if they started with something that allowed you to stay alive uh, for a little while, while while it was happening. But death by snakes in the desert, that's a bad deal. And in Numbers chapter 21, people were getting bitten by poisonous snakes and they were dying just all over the place. And Moses races to God and was like, God, you can't do that. You can't kill everyone. Like, if we don't make it to the promised land, the Egyptians are going to say God couldn't deliver them, and our God's not a real God, and the snake God's better than Israel's God. Like, you've got to do something. And God said, oh, you're right. Here's what we'll do. He said, I want you to get your staff, and I want you to form a, a copper snake, a bronze snake. And he said, I want you to wrap it around a staff and hold it up. Now, you have seen this on the back of an ambulance. You've probably seen this on hospital doors. Sometimes we forget how much stuff came from Scripture. And God said, I want you to tell the people who are sick and dying and, and destined for death because they've already been bit. I want you to tell them to look at the snake and to put their faith in me and to quit grumbling and they'll be okay. And people who were destined to die, they were dying, had a moment where salvation was offered to them if they would just look and put their faith in God. And Jesus said, I have come so that these people who are dying can look up and put their faith and their hope in me and be saved. But he said, they no longer, Nicodemus, you no longer realize you're dying spiritually. And you don't see a need for a savior because you're so wrapped up in your ceremony. And he said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And you've got to start over spiritually. And you need to realize that your soul is destined for death. 
but I can save it to life if you'll put your hope in me instead of all this stuff that you're doing. And he said, you can start over. And that conversation was so transformational in the life of Nicodemus that after Jesus was physically raised up and died on that cross, he was one of the two there to take it off and to bury it. Think about the proximity that he had to Jesus' burial and resurrection. Now let me ask you a question. Do you need to start over? Has something in your life been snake-bitten and it's destined for destruction? Your marriage has been snake-bitten and you just don't see any hope? Your kids have been snake-bitten spiritually and you just don't see any hope? You've become addicted to something you never wanted to be addicted to and you just feel snake-bitten. You're never going to get away from it. Do you need to start over? Because even after we have been snake-bitten, and even after we feel like we have been destined to destruction, and even after we feel like the game is not going to let us win, Jesus says you can start over. And I love what Jesus says as we phrased it today. Some of us see you have to start over. Some of you see it this way, I get to start over. It's not that I have to, I get to. And thank God, because I really messed up the first half. So thank you, God, that I get to start over. But how do you start over? Let's just walk through the steps one more time and then we'll pray. How do you start over? It begins by recognizing a need. It begins by recognizing a need. I've been snake bit. I cannot win this game. I'm going to lose this game. Nicodemus, I've been doing all this church stuff. But I'm telling you, on the inside, I don't feel alive. Recognize a need. Secondly, recognize that there is a spiritual answer to that need. We'll begin dealing with it much more in depth next week, but realize that God is God and through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, spiritual things that don't even make sense until we've experienced them, then they become unexplainable but undeniable. Recognize we have a spiritual need that can be met. And then thirdly, start over by trusting Jesus as your Savior because you need salvation. You need rescue. You don't just need activity. You need rescue. And then follow his plan for your lives. You say, well, where'd you get follow? It sounds like you just threw that in there. Let me read the rest of John chapter 3. Because we stopped at trust Jesus as Savior. But Jesus told Nicodemus, you continue by now living your life the way that I've told you. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, he's talking about the son, he's talking about himself. Whoever believes in, believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So this is the verdict. Here's the final say. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and they won't come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's read verse 21 again. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. You need to underline that. Man, that's like a biblical truth to take home with us today. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So you say, I need a change on the inside. That's great. Jesus can do that. He can supernaturally change your soul. But you say, how will change continue to manifest itself in my life? You begin to read God's word and you begin to do what it says. And very slowly, your life begins to come into the light of who Jesus is and the next thing you know, you're not just a convert of Jesus, but you're a follower of Jesus. And you live your life thankful for the opportunity to start over, 
aware that you've started over spiritually and you live for salvation, not ceremony. And that's a much better way to go spiritually.